0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series called The Authority of the King, found in the book of Matthew. So let's listen to a message entitled, A Kingdom for the Nations, as we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13.
1: Have you ever wondered how much misery there is in this world? I mean, how many diseases are there? Everything from cancers to infectious diseases, asthma, diabetes, heart disease, kidney disease, Alzheimer's, autoimmune diseases, neurological diseases, there are hereditary diseases. Then think of the effects of diseases. Social isolation, to depression, to poverty. And we all know where this is going. Eventually, it leads to death. See, disease stalks the human race. We we fear it, we try to avoid it. We're born with it, we live with it, we fight it, we spend money on it, that is, in, in trying to defeat it, we take precautions against it, still we get it. We all know that Jesus healed people. But have you ever wondered about this? How are we to understand this? Why did Jesus heal people? And does this mean, just like in the time of Jesus, that I could be healed as well? Yeah, I, I think so. Well, if this is so, why should anyone go to the doctor if, if Jesus can heal? Why even take a pill for a headache or or go to the dentist for a toothache? Did you know that Jesus actually didn't heal everyone? Luke chapter 4, verse 43 records that everyone in Capernaum got so excited about the healing ministry of Jesus, they were seeking him out. But then, in the middle of it, Jesus said that he had to leave. He had to preach in other towns as well. He had essentially done what he was going to do there. And that makes me wonder. Is there a pattern to the healing ministry of Jesus? Why did he heal these we read about? He seems to have selected them. Why? And what can I learn from that and what's in it for me? You know, today as we continue our study in Matthew chapters 8 to 10, we're focused on the healing ministry of Jesus. And what strikes me as I study this text is who Jesus decided to heal. Why did he heal these and not others? Is there a discernible pattern to the kinds of healing that he did? We began by noticing that the first person mentioned, that is, found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1-4, to is the healing of a leprous man. See, a leper is a social outcast. He's, he's isolated from society. He is an untouchable. Then the second healing is equally interesting. Jesus moves from the outcast leper to a Roman centurion, a man who represents foreign occupation of Israel. He's the enemy of the nation. He stands opposed to the hope of what Jews wanted the Messiah to do. But let's read the passage. I'm reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. You know, most people have heard about the healing ministry of Jesus. Christians have all read of the healing ministry of Jesus. It's really quite breathtaking. You know, for myself, I just can't seem to get enough of this stuff. It's so hopeful, it's so encouraging, so filled with glad and good news. But why does he heal at all? Well, let me briefly review what we've said up till now. There are two possible responses. First, Jesus heals because he has compassion on wounded and suffering people. And we read about that later in, in Matthew nine thirty six. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So clearly, Jesus is moved by the plight of people. It tells me of the love of our Savior. But we might give another reason. Second, Jesus' healing shows that he truly is who he says he is. Yet Matthew also tells us that. For instance, in Matthew 112 2 5, let's read that part. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them." In other words, if you want to know if I am the Messiah, watch what I've done. This is the evidence. See, we call that apologetics, proof positive that any skeptic will have to consider. How else can you explain blind people seeing and dead people rising to their feet? The evidence that he is who he says he is is simply overwhelming. But there's another reason Jesus heals, and it's found right in the text that we're reading. Look again at Matthew 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, the healing of the sick was evidence of an invitation into the kingdom of heaven. The invitation and the response to that invitation is so vast, it will come from countries and lands that are unexpected, people who one might never consider people groups, cultures, races, nationalities of an unexpected variety are going to want a place at God's table, and they will find one. What happened to the centurion is directly related to that, to God's global invitation to come to his table. Now, that table in verse 11 is a banqueting table. The prophets spoke about that. For instance, the prophet Isaiah looked into the near future and saw that the mountain upon which Jerusalem was built would become a heap, it would be a ruin. And then, looking past that into the distant future, he again sees the mountain of Jerusalem, but now it looks different. Here's what he sees. It's fascinating, and I'm reading Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, and then verses 8 and 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, of a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Wow, what a vision. The people at the banquet are eating and drinking, and they're pinching themselves and saying, I can hardly believe we're here. I can hardly believe we're here. God made promises to us, and we've been waiting for years. And now, finally, we're seated at the greatest banqueting hall in history. All the promises of God are now proved to be true. You know, that day is still in the future. But with Jesus, something in the present is happening. Isaiah saw that death would be swallowed up and that tears would be dried. And that's what was happening as Jesus healed. That great future event had now unexpectedly and suddenly and surprisingly, it was pushing its way right into the present hour. See, on the one hand, Jesus, just like Isaiah, spoke about the kingdom as a future event. So, for instance, in Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus tells us about what will happen when he comes again. He's compared his second coming to a great wedding feast, a banquet, and here's what he said would happen. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So you see, the kingdom still lies before us. We're still waiting for that. But on the other hand, the kingdom is a present reality. Jesus said so in Matthew 12, verse 28. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So simply listening to Jesus, we know that while we await the kingdom at the end of time, yet in a unique and fascinating and totally unexpected way, the kingdom has arrived. Every time he drives out a demon and heals the sick, he shows that this age is passing away and the kingdom is not only coming, but in some way it's already here. Tears are being dried. The blind are gaining their sight. The lame are walking. The dead are already standing up in their tombs. It's almost incomprehensible that the great end times are in some fashion already bursting into the present. That's what the healing ministry is to signify. It's as if the end times came early, but not completely and fully. And that's why everyone was pressing in to see him. Could this be the great end times messiah? See, everyone wants to know. Are we at the end of history? Everyone's wondering, what do these events mean? And instead of answering the question, this Roman centurion simply comes to Jesus. Am I a Gentile conqueror of Israel? Am I also invited to this table of blessing? He wants to know, and we should want to know as well.
0: Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand. So we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate. Register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Gaines, Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings and the Back to the Bible Canada team travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available. So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.
1: Matthew reveals the healing of the centurion's servant, an incident that happened when Jesus was entering into Capernaum. See, Capernaum is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and it was there that Jesus set up his base of operations. It became his hometown. It was a trading city that stood in ancient crossroads, and for that reason, it had a tax station there. And you'll remember that it was Matthew himself who manned that station, and in order to protect such a place, the Romans supported it with a garrison of imperial troops. That garrison would have been commanded by a centurion, the very man that Matthew mentions. Centurions commanded a hundred men, though from time to time that number would vary. The Roman army considered them the backbone of all their military operations. On the battlefield and at peacetime, the efficiency of the Roman legions depended entirely on their work. As officers, they were forbidden friendship with fellow soldiers. Uh, They were forbidden marriage for the first 20 years of their service, and yet they were considered upright men. Every single New Testament reference to centurions refers to them as men of high integrity but they were lonely men. So the word for servant found in Matthew 8 verse 5 is actually a word that can be translated as lad. Lord, my lad, or my boy, is lying paralyzed at home. He means that the servant is not just useful to him, he loves him. He's the closest thing to family that he has. He was like a son that he never had. To watch him suffering, that's breaking his heart. He's paralyzed, pain is unbearable. Now, given that condition, you might expect the centurion to ask Jesus to come and heal him, but in actual fact, he brings no request. He only tells Jesus the facts. What Jesus will do about this, well, that's going to be entirely up to him. This is all the centurion will say. My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. I suspect that's no exaggeration. This centurion had no doubt seen the battlefield. And he'd witnessed more suffering than most of us can imagine. To say that the suffering is terrible tells me that most likely he is suffering nerve pain. It's unremitting pain. And so he states the facts, and then he waits. I think he's completely aware that as a Gentile soldier, he may find no sympathy from this Jewish healer. Later on, he will tell Jesus that he is unworthy to have him come under his roof. And in context, that's understandable. He knows that Jews were forbidden from entering the home of a Gentile. It may be that he was simply sensitive to the Jewish sensibilities. You know, if Jesus comes to his home, he's going to be criticized, and and people may reject Jesus because of what he's asking. And so, he says, I'm not worthy. Now, some Bible teachers believe that he's also aware of his own sinfulness, and, and that might be. I mean, perhaps, having lived in Israel, he's become aware of the law, and he has, and he's become aware of the demands of righteousness, and perhaps he intuitively knows that he falls short of God's standards. But whatever the full reason for his knowledge that he is unworthy, he is mindful that he's on the outside, and he doesn't properly have an expectation that this Jewish healer will do anything for a Gentile. And what I find remarkable is how he addresses Jesus. Look again at verse 6. He calls him Lord. See, whatever he meant by that, it's at very least both a term of respect and a knowledge that Jesus is greater than he is. Now, I'm sure he didn't know who Jesus really was, but, but he knows that he's a great man. He, he's on the road to understanding. Now to verse 7. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Just like that. Jesus simply takes the initiative. I'm coming to your house. And once there, your servant's suffering is going to instantly end. Now, the Bible teachers have pointed out that in the Greek language, this statement could also read as a question, should I come and heal him? I mean, both readings are equally possible here. Now, if Jesus asks the question, then he simply demands that the man clarify himself. What do you want? Do you want me to come under your roof and visit this man? You're going to have to be clear. Or Jesus simply may have made the statement, You didn't ask, and I'm fully aware of how complicated this matter is. You're a Gentile centurion, not knowing where you stand, but I am going to come. See, either is possible, but it it really doesn't matter either way because the man is horrified that Jesus should come. He's unworthy. He may be a military man of honor in his culture, but he's a Gentile seeking the Jewish God. And and Paul, if you'll remember, would later reflect on that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12, where he speaks of the Gentile condition. So let me read it. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, Paul says, and without God in the world. It's as if this man knew this stuff intuitively, but he also knows something else. This man knows something about authority. He knows it because that was his life. And because of that, Jesus doesn't have to come in order to heal his servant. See, in Rome, and among Roman troops, all authority was vested in the emperor. When any centurion gave orders to his troops, those orders were thought to have been given by the emperor himself. So if you disobeyed your centurion, you were disobeying your emperor, which was an act of treason. That's the world in which this man lived. His word was law. And that's the worldview that he used when he considered Jesus. He simply assumed that Jesus was like him in this sense. Jesus spoke with the authority of God. To hear Jesus speak was no different than hearing God speak. Now, does that mean he understood the Trinity or the two natures of Christ? Well, of course not. But this much he knows. Whatever Jesus decides in my case will have been the decision of God. So if God has decided, all Jesus needs to do is give the word, just a word, and it's so. I can imagine Jesus raising his eyebrows. Now, do you notice the pattern? I mean a pattern of the healing of Jesus. Look back at verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. There was faith on the part of the leper. He believed that Jesus could make him clean. He had that power. But now, here is a variety of faith that is unmatched in Israel. That's that's not to say that Jesus has not witnessed any faith in Israel. It's to say that this kind of a grasp of who Jesus is, well, none of the Jewish people had gotten anywhere near where this man had gotten. This man had one of the basic ingredients of true faith. You see, true faith means embracing the notion of our own unworthiness. And this man intuitively understood that essential principle. And that seems to be the theme of the healing of Jesus. Much of that flies in the face of our culture. You see, we tend to shake our fists at God if he doesn't come through in the way we want him to. We tend to think we're entitled in some way. But this man, and and Luke tells us that he built the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. Indeed, Luke 7 verse 5 says that the Jews said to Jesus, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one that built our synagogue. But that's what others said of him. In contrast, he's conscious that he's not worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. And I can't help but reflect on that. Jesus brought his kingdom to a man who is by nature an outcast and who have been thought of that as well. And What's interesting to me is that when Matthew tells the account of the Roman centurion, he chooses not to reveal that this man built the synagogue. Why do you think that is? I think it's simply because Matthew wants us to see a pattern The kingdom of God is coming to lepers and Roman centurions, and both of them don't expect and they don't deserve the kingdom. And that's Matthew's point. When he remembers that Jesus said that many come from the east and west, and they will dine at table with Abraham— He is saying that the unexpected people of the earth are going to join him in the end times banquet, while those in Israel who thought it to be their right to be there and who were arrogant would be excluded. Clearly, the kingdom of heaven is denied to those who think they have an inherent right to it. And it's given to those who are overwhelmed by their own sin and by the graciousness of God. Indeed, to those who feel entitled Jesus promises only a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this healing is an invitation. Everyone who has nothing to offer, come to the end times banquet. Everyone who is unworthy and bowed down with sin and aware of their sin and their unworthiness is invited to come. And everyone who feels self-righteous and entitled and worthy is denied entrance. And that's why Jesus healed this man's servant. He wanted to make sure we would never forget who receives His kingdom and who is denied.
0: John, thanks for your message today. You know, I was thinking as you were speaking about the, these two people and 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 their their awareness of or, or their lack of awareness of who Christ is, but Christ did something in their lives, and it made me think. You know. Jesus isn't restricted as to whose life he will choose to work in. No, he's not. Clearly, he chooses the vessels of his
1: mercy. But at the same time, there is a pattern here because both men were rejected by the wider culture. And uh, Jesus goes past that rejection and, and finds them. And uh, I think in the case of this centurion, there's something in his heart. I mean, the fact that he would have built the Jewish synagogue tells me that he was drawn to the God of Israel, but like so many of the God-fearers in his day, um, they were drawn but uh, were kept at a distance from the God of Israel, and Jesus just moves right in. And uh, it's a wonderful story of those who have no place at the table of God finding a place, and that really is the central message of the gospel.
0: We find that everywhere. Thanks so much, Sean, and thanks for your message today. And join us again tomorrow right here for more of this series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage you spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.